Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, author and former CIA officer Alex Finley on spy satire. So I do a lot of poking fun at the Russians. The Russian president that I have made up, he gets made fun of. But I don't think there is anything in the book that does not stem from something real. Like you look at Roman Abramovich, he owns almost 2 billion euros worth of yachts. And this is just one guy and it's just the yachts. These yachts are not detained. So it's just like a bank account. It's frozen. But but we may be paying the upkeep on these because you have to guarantee that a frozen asset is given back, that it hasn't lost any value. Alex Finley, welcome to Chatter. Thank you for having me. Hello, we're both here. I, I didn't I didn't know you were crashing. What, I just, how did hello? you get into this? We set up we set up a, a channel directly to to Europe for Alex to come in. Did you fly to Europe so that you could join this? I wish. I really wish I were in Barcelona with Alex. How how is Barcelona treating you this week, Alex? Barcelona is great. It treats me very nicely every week. Oh. Now, I remember That's one of my favorite cities in the world. At the beginning of the pandemic, uh, we were talking, and Barcelona is one of those cities, like others in in Italy in particular, where people were going out on their porches and singing and doing things communally because they couldn't actually see each other on the street. Um, I assume that's not happening anymore. That you're not having nightly sing-alongs out on the out on the patio. No, but now it just everybody's out. So it's actually, it's very lively. Uh, they moved a lot of the restaurant stuff and bars. They moved out onto terraces. They allowed a lot more permits to allow more outdoor tables and everything. Mm-hmm. So everybody's just outside all the time. Does life seem normal now? Yeah, life seems pretty normal. We still have masks, mm-hmm. um, but that ends this week. Oh, and they'll wow. still have it on mass transport and some other places, but... Otherwise, after this, you can go in a store without a mask. But up until now, we we still have it, and people follow the rules. There's like it's no, it's not political. People just like, oh, this helps stop the disease. Great, we'll we'll do this. Impossible. It's very weird. What a concept. <laughs> well, thank you for for joining us. We want to talk about several things, but you know, first, just to lay the foundation for our listeners who somehow aren't familiar with you from. Twitter or national television or various outlets where you've published your, your writing, you, you worked in the directorate of operations and was it the directorate of operations or was it the national clandestine service at the time? It was the directorate of operations when I joined and then like a week later or something ridiculous, it changed to the national clandestine service. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just recently, what, in 2000. I didn't even know. A couple of years ago, it went back to the DO. So if you saved that old mug, yep. you could just pull it out of the desk drawer and it was useful again. <laughs> that was an old joke when I was there that there were all these individual offices, uh, operational offices, analytic offices that had their acronyms, right? And there's only, I'm not going to do the math, but there's only so many permutations of the letters in the English alphabet. And when you have a bureaucracy the size of the agency and the intelligence community more widely, the acronyms will come up again in one fashion or another. And they said, always hold on to your mug because you may have, you may transfer to a new office. It gets renamed. 
you don't have to get a new mug. That can save you literally dollars. This is true. But now I want to know, do they save the the software coding? Because they, they redid all the coding, right? Everything that had been DO went to NCS and then oh. it went back. So all that coding had to be changed. Well, that's That sounds like a new novel. Like what, what could go wrong? It's like Y2K, but boring. Exactly. I'm sure that that'll really sell. Were you there when they when when they did the reorg and everything became centers? No, I was gone by that point. Oof. And that's, and that, that's when the acronyms got crazy. Yeah, those acronyms because they're super long, right? Yeah, they're very long. Like the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center, like the yeah. EEMC. No, this is it not roll work. off the tongue. You need you need a very large mug to fit all yes. of the letters. My understanding yes. is that, in fact, the reorganization or the modernization effort, as it was called, was a direct result of Alex and I leaving the agency. They decided oh. that, really, what more can we do with the old structure without exactly? these two? So let's just start the whole thing over. That's just what I've heard. I heard the same. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I can do. confirm. That's yeah. two sources. Yeah. Two sources is corroboration. <laughs> People familiar with the matter say, <laughs> uh, Alex, you, you you did operational work. Describe the the types of people, the types of uh, job categories, if you will. That are involved the in the types of people. Do yeah. you really want me to? No, 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 no. I don't want people? personality profiles of the people you worked with because some of them were not good people. But I do want to know the types of jobs that that are involved in operational work because I think everybody thinks about the the case officer or you know the the operations officer who's out in the field recruiting spies, meeting with assets, things like that. But but there are other roles involved to make operational work actually effective and sometimes efficient. So what what are those roles and and kind of how did you fit into that picture? I like that you say the sometimes efficient because sometimes they make it inefficient. Yes. So the case officer, so back all of these names have changed now that you have the mission centers. But when I was there, uh, a case officer is what most people would think of when they think of a spy at the CIA. That was the person who goes out in the field, recruits sources, collects intelligence, and and brings it back in. So sort of when you think of your very typical, what does a spy do? That is a case officer. But there are, of course, lots of people who help (laughs) to make that happen. So my role was a reports officer. And so I was the bridge sort of between the analysts and the Directorate of uh, Intelligence and the operators in the Directorate of Operations. So I would work with the analysts and with our other customers, as we called them, to say, what are the gaps in intelligence? What requirements do you have? What things do you need to know? And then I would turn back to our case officer side and say, okay, what sources do we have that can answer these questions? Or who do we have that we're developing that might be able to answer these questions? So that was one element of my job. Mm -hmm. Another element of it was um, a certain amount of validation of the information. So when the intelligence is collected and comes in, then I would work with analysts and others to uh, say, okay, is is this plausible information? Does it seem right that a source would have access to this information? Does it corroborate anything else that we have already? Or is it totally inexplicable that this person would have access to this information? And so maybe it's not trustworthy information and there's other motivation behind it. 
You know, I think that's an important point is there's this mythology, even I think among some generally well-educated about espionage folks, that a source reports something and it goes to the president, right? There, there's no steps in between. The information comes in and then you get these inane conversations in the public sphere about high confidence versus medium and low confidence and what that means. But that misses this whole process, right? The whole process by which sources and information are both vetted rigorously to determine, uh, does this source have access to the kinds of things that, that she says she has access to? Does the information itself check out against other higher quality, more known information? And only through that process do you get to a point where a source may regularly have its information be treated as high confidence information. Yes, exactly. And as you know, coming from the analytical side, there is a difference between raw intelligence and finished intelligence. Mm -hmm. So on our side, we were working in the operational side, we're working with the raw intelligence. This is what you collect out of the field and it comes in but it may be a total lie. It, it may be totally made up. We don't know, or maybe we, we think that we know, but we need to sort of figure that out. And so you, you're looking at the motivation of the source. And again, the, the access that that source has to that information. Did they hear it firsthand, secondhand, thirdhand? Was it a rumor they picked up in a bar? What, what is it? How, where does this information come from? But then it goes through this whole process, exactly as you said, to become finished intelligence, which is what the analysts do. And the analysts are putting it together with information that they're picking up from all other types of sources. It may be from open sources or from other agencies that collect intelligence, and they put it all together. So what reaches our, the policymakers is that finished intelligence. And the problems come when it's the raw intelligence that policymakers start to, to pick up on. And, and we now have uh, examples, unfortunately, of that uh, uh, leading to some pretty bad policy decisions. I've made the analogy many times to a lot of intelligence officers that being a journalist and being an intelligence officer is in many ways the same job. And it's interesting, the process that you're describing is a function that in a newsroom, an editor has to play where mm -hmm. the reporters who are kind of like the case officers are bringing in all this stuff from sources, but the editor has to kind of sit atop the process and really kind of you know push you on like, well, how did you hear it? And the reporters do that too. I mean, good reporters don't ask those questions as I'm sure good case officers don't just like come rushing into the room being like, you'll never believe what I heard. Um, but it's funny how in the analogy of, and David's like, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah of seen, like when, when the policy, both ways. yeah, right. Uh, sometimes reporters really want to believe a story, but like the policymaker wanting to get a hold of raw intel, it's sort of like editors and particularly senior editors have this problem too, where sometimes they'll hear your tip and like, you know, and then they're like, oh, you got a tip that said X. And then they're kind of like imagining the story. And you're like, whoa, 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 put the brakes on. Um, but all of those levels of people kind of have to be there, you know, not second guessing, but providing that kind of rigor and that, you know, um, strength in the system so that you're not just like, you know, pulling in hearsay and garbage, right? I mean, it has to be, it's, 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 it has right, to be a the, very orderly but process. Very, very similar too. An, an editor, like a policymaker may decide already the headline is already written, right? Right. They have in mind what they want the story to be. And we've had that where policymakers already know what the policy, they want the policy to be. And so now it's just, well, 
let's find the intelligence that fills all of that in and gives me the story that I want. Well, we, yeah. we can, you know, that can be done if you just ignore all of the other information, <laughs> but you're not, you get, you're not getting a full and complete story and you're not, yeah. you're not doing empirically. You're, you're doing exactly the backwards where you're starting with what you want the story to be and you're filling it in rather than letting the intelligence tell you what the story, uh, you know, is. Right. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. And I, I think the, the reports officer role is both lesser known but also lesser appreciated in so many ways because it's one of the few jobs before the modernization initiative, at least it's one of the few jobs where you had insight into the analytical process and the provision of finished intelligence to policymakers because of the closer connection to analysts than many in the operations uh, jobs. And yet you were intimately involved with the collection of the intelligence and, and in the field assisting and, Having having that kind of insight into both worlds, my my imagination is telling me that in the modern era of this new reorganization where analysts and operators are generally working closer together, that the the reports officer cadre is probably central to helping that work on a office to office level. Oh, you know, I've actually been wondering that. And I I've been wondering if it's actually just the opposite. If, if the reports officer isn't even needed anymore because the reports officer was the bridge between the two. Right. And now the, the uh, reorg brought the two into the same room, into the same offices, and everybody is now considered an intelligence officer. Um, so you don't have a case officer. You don't have these yeah. sort of separate things as much anymore. And so now that you have much more, that, that the analysts have much more access to the operators I, I don't know if that role in between exists anymore. I've got actually, this image in my mind now. Maybe we could work on this collectively of a remake of the movie Office Space. And when the Bobs come in, the management consultants, and they ask, So what is it you do? You know, <laughs> well, I, I carry these requests from the customers to the engineers, and they can't. Well, maybe, maybe just bear with me here. Just maybe instead of the Bobs, we have uh, John Brennan. And he puts in the reorganization and the modernization, and he sits down and talks to a reports officer and says, look, what, what is it you say you do? Why, why can't they just do that directly? And hilarity ensues. What do you think? Uh, so that's actually kind of my first book, but <laughs> we can get, we can get into that later. And it wouldn't be John Brennan sitting down with them. It would be McKinsey. Right, so it would be oh, oh name, the consultants name hired to help. It'd be Pete Buttigieg. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you know what? If the whole transportation secretary thing isn't working for him, he Doesn't could go work. into acting. That would work. Well, he was a he was a McKinsey consultant. Yeah. Wasn't he? yeah, yeah. So I mean, he would be it'd be more method for him, um, but not as hard as it is for others. So Alex, Gina Haspel was famously started out as a reports officer. So when she became director, were reports officers like one of us? Uh, no, because she very much got, uh, painted as the, cause she had really moved into operations at that point. Right. And uh, had done all kinds yeah. of operational things at that point. Yeah. Um, gotcha. so, so you're like, not one of us. We don't, yeah, do, I don't, we, know. don't we don't destroy tapes. <laughs> I, was, I was gone by that point and I hadn't, I didn't keep up with so many of the reports people, but, but even when I was there, I, I was questioning my own role. And the, uh, whether I was uh, superfluous or not, um, because there really was, you know, when I first came in that, that wall between the DI and the DO was still very much mm -hmm. in, in place. 
uh, because I came in in early 2003. So, wow. but yeah. it it was 9/11 and all the events in and then Iraq, the things that happened after, that started breaking down that wall where they said, okay, well, we need to start having more coordination between the two, particularly when it came to uh, the counterterrorism center, which was sort of the first place where you started bringing the two groups together. And so, you know, as I was moving forward in my career, more and more, we had anyway, the analysts and the operators talking directly. And I was just kind of, you know, sitting in the, in the room. I mean, I, I had, I hope I had things to, to add, but there, once the analysts got access to operation, operational information, there wasn't a whole lot of need, I don't think, for people in my role. So that's why I'd, I wonder now with the mission centers if it, if that role even still exists. Yeah, there's still another divide that definitely still exists, though. I mean, we've talked about the analysis versus operations frame, but there's also the field versus headquarters frame. And you had the opportunity to serve both in the field and, and headquarters. We won't talk about specific locations, but in general, talk about the uh, the tension between headquarters and the field, and that will actually provide some some fodder for your writing later. But even at the time when you were working, how did you feel being out in the field versus being in an office at headquarters? Everybody at headquarters loves everyone in the field, and everyone in the field loves everyone at headquarters. Now we know you didn't actually work there. <laughs> uh, no, there is definitely... There was when I was there, there was a very strange dynamic between headquarters and field because the people in the field very much see themselves as being on the front line. They are the one taking the risks. They are running people who are running sources who are taking incredible risks. They need to move at the speed of those operations. And they've, you know, they feel like they're the ones who are out there really putting it on the line. And then they have to sort of ask permission from Washington to do things. Well, Washington or the headquarters, you know, feels like, well, we are the managers of all of this. We give you the money and therefore, and we have legal, <laughs> we have all of the legal people here telling us what you can and cannot do. So we're going to put reins on, on certain things that you're trying to do. And as, um, even before Brennan's reorg, there there were some changes. Like when we became the DO, became the NCS. There were a number of changes internally that happened, and one of the things we started to see in those years was a centralization of decision making. And so more and more, I think under Director Hayden, decisions were being made much more uh, back in Washington. And we used to joke and call it ops by committee. So you just had everybody in Washington had to sort of weigh in before a decision could be made and before somebody in the field could actually go and take an action. And it started to be a little bit too much. And then adding to this dynamic was um, after the, after 2003, well, whatever year it was, but um, George Bush said, well, we need a, we need to increase the, the number of personnel at CIA. So there was a huge influx of uh, young, brand new officers who came in. And so now you had all these extra people who wanted to participate. And so they, they sort of wrote themselves into the process of, of running the operations. So everybody, even if they only tangentially were 
related to any operation, they would find a reason that they needed to weigh in because nobody wants to be superfluous. And so you had lines of people that now needed to coordinate on a cable or needed to, uh, you know, give their, uh, give their take on an operation before something could actually happen. And it got very frustrating. I think earlier, especially I would hear from officers who were there before all of this, when you were just kind of let loose in the field, the COS uh, would make the decisions out in the field and things moved a lot faster. And this, because you had sort of instant communications with headquarters and all of the rest, headquarters really felt, okay, we, we now have the right to sort of be involved in every detail of what you're doing. Just as a like quotidian matter, like there's a time difference. So like what happens if you need an answer now and it's three o'clock in the morning at Langley? I mean, is do you have to wake up the boss or is somebody empowered to be like the overnight uh, mother in the mother may I game? That that depends. I mean, there are some situations where that is the case that, you know, there are um, certain like alerts that you can put on a cable, for example, that would would ring, you know, somebody who's uh, who's on call or something so that immediate decisions can be made. Yeah. But this was more for sort of day-to-day running of operations. And, um, you know, even just, you know, I would like to make a phone call. Okay. Well, we're going to have to coordinate this among 32 people back at Washington before we give you permission to do that. Wow. Yeah. Newsrooms are not like that, uh, (laughs) thankfully. At least the good ones. Yeah. So Alex, more recently, you've done something uh, as just private citizen, former government employee, Alex, um, that is a step that is not typical for a former officer. You see what I did there? Not that was clever. Typical. That was very clever. Yeah. Um, I'm guessing that some of our listeners know you because they've seen you on MSNBC or CNN or somewhere talking about yachts, specifically yachts owned by ridiculously galactically wealthy Russians. Um, Talk about how you started watching big boats and how that turned into something that has made you somewhat of an expert on a rather esoteric topic. My weird obsession with yachts. So (laughs) this is it. It's actually not a weird obsession with yachts. This isn't like my holidays were spent yacht watching. Um, (laughs) So I had been researching, okay, let me go even farther back. I had covered the Russia investigation into election interference in the United States. And given my background as an intelligence officer and my former uh, self as a journalist, I was very well positioned to sort of explain to a general audience why what the Russians were doing actually were intelligence operations and why this was a, a national security issue and not a political issue. And as I covered that and learned more about what the Russians were doing and how it worked, I learned a lot about Russian influence operations. And I got really, really frustrated with the focus of it always being on the United States, at least within the American public debate. So I also learned a lot about what was going on in Europe because the Russians were running very similar influence operations in Europe. And through all of this, you, of course, come across the oligarchs. And so I started learning a lot about the role of the oligarchs in supporting Putin, 
and their role helping in his destabilization efforts. And of course, then if you're going to look at oligarchs, now you have to look at yachts, because if you're an oligarch, you have to have a yacht because they are very status conscious and all of the oligarchs have yachts. On top of that, I live in Barcelona, um, which has one of the biggest shipyards in Europe and is made expressly to attract these mega yachts. So I, I mean, one of the first times I arrived in Barcelona, I went down to the, the port and I said, wow, that's a lot of rubles. So it, it was very clear from the very early on, there were tons of Russian boats down there. Uh, there are others too, but there were a lot of Russian ones. And so through all of this, I just, I got to know the boats. I got to know the yachts and I got to know the oligarchs and I knew what their role was. And so I commented on Twitter. I was kind of shit posting about the yachts on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And uh, as it became clear to me that this war was going to start, it also was clear to me that the logical next step would be sanctions on the oligarchs because within sort of the national security and intelligence community, even among us formers, that was very clearly uh, the next step in all of this. And, um, and so I started posting a little bit more about the yachts and, um, where they are and who they belong to and where they were starting to move as this Mm -hmm. war began. And that, that was the birth of Yacht Watch. And I have to say, it has actually played into the public understanding of the, the international financial implications of, of a lot of the current crisis, because it's something that's tangible. It's not something that's reachable for the vast majority of human population, but it's something that is, is visible and fun and attractive to talk about as opposed to different financial instruments run through offshore companies that y- you lose most people that way. You don't lose people when you're talking about you know, this beautiful big ass yacht that has all kinds of crazy accoutrement, right? So you write in your new book, about one of these yachts. It's a fictional one, but I I think only barely. It has some of the things that you often see on some of these mega yachts, like jet skis, a sophisticated radar system, security lookouts, and things like that. But the amenities and, and the functions of this particular yacht are just excellent. You have a dance floor that actually was built on a gyroscope to maintain an even keel, even as the boat is moving. You have berries flown in from the one valley in the Chilean Patagonian mountains that are that are there to provide for guests. A steam room infused with incense derived from a rare orchid found on a single mountain peak in Nepal that blooms only two days a year. This, this sounds like you've actually uh, been on one that had some of these or you're actually fantasizing about the yacht you're going to build with your ill-gotten proceeds from this effort. And like I said, I did quite a bit of research on these and these guys live, it's, it's insanely extravagant, right? Mm -hmm. And like you said, I, for me, that's why the yachts are so interesting is because it is this visualization, something we can actually grasp and understand This is a $600 million piece of equipment. And this is only one yacht that this, you know, that this guy owns. So like you look at Roman Abramovich, he owns almost 2 billion euros worth of yachts. It's crazy. 
That's nuts. And this is just one guy and it's just the yachts. And so in doing the research, there was looking at not just the the technology of this machine itself, but the extravagance that goes into it, that you need the crew running it all the time, that you're out sitting in the middle of the Mediterranean, but you have prostitutes flown in or you have caviar flown in. And this is why I picked like a very rare superfood from no middle of nowhere, Patagonia flown in because what extravagant is too extravagant for any of these oligarchs? There's nothing, they have nothing but money and it's insane. And so that's, that's why I went with sort of the nutcase scenario on the boat. How much are they up on each other's, um, Yachtness. I mean, does Roman Abramovich keep up with like, you know, what Barry's Oleg Deripaska is flying in and always trying to one up him? I mean, it seems to me like, as you said, this is a status symbol and clearly this is, you know, competition and it's um, a measuring contest among the boys, as we might say. Yes. And I allude to that in in my book. So I won't. Should I say the name of the yacht? Do it. Do it. Go ahead. The, the name of the yacht in the book is Mine's Bigger. Yes. <laughs> the, 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 these are definitely status symbols between them, and there's competition between them. And, um, yeah, I mean, Abramovich wanted the longest yacht, and then somebody else built a yacht that was bigger, so he <laughs> built God. another yacht. And now the U.S. government has many of these yachts, not the owners of them, but at least the temporary stewards. A little bit, but but we may be paying the upkeep on these. It's this is what I was going to ask you. <laughs> right. So that's the problem: is these yachts are not detained. They're not, or they're not seized. Excuse right, me. They're it's frozen. Not, yeah. There's not forfeiture. So it's just like a bank account. It's frozen. We do not have the right to touch it to use it for anything else. But they don't either. But you have to guarantee that a frozen asset is given back. In the case that you have to give it back, that it's it hasn't lost any value because then if they're found not guilty in whatever criminal proceeding we may ever successfully bring against them, if they're found not guilty in that criminal proceeding and they get access once again to their assets, if it has lost value, they can then countersue the government to, to say, well, my assets lost value because of your actions. So, so you got to kind of like keep it up. This is it. And keeping up a $600 million yacht is very different than even, you know, a $120 million villa in the south of France. You know, that's that's its own that that has its own challenges. But a yacht is particularly challenging because it's so high tech. You have so few people who know how to take care of it. Hmm. And it's sitting in corrosive salt water. Um, I mean, these yachts. So a, a typical sort of statistic about it is that generally a yacht will cost you 10% of its value per year. So a $600 million yacht will cost 10% of that. So $60 million per year just in, in maintenance. Hmm. And that doesn't include running it, right? Wow. So that doesn't include... Um, you know, getting your, you know, filling it up with gas. I mean, that just alone, like, you know, you're looking at like a million dollars just to fill some of these things up. That doesn't include just turning on the engine. How much does it even, you know, that's another $60,000 just to turn the engine on. 
So these things, it's, it's tons and tons of money. There's an old famous saying, I'm sure you've heard it, and maybe it's in the book, about yeah, about boats, that the happiest day in a boat owner's life is, uh, how, how does it, the, the happiest day is the day you buy the boat, the second happiest day is the day you sell it. The day you sell it, yep. Because it's just a nonstop headache. I mean, you know, it makes home ownership look, you know, relatively easy, easy by comparison. Well, in the yep. case of your character's boat, the mine's bigger, I mean, he has to pay for the maintenance of the full-sized ice rink nestled in the lower levels of the yacht, as well as maintaining the the stools in the bar, which are covered in beluga whale foreskin, the softest material on earth. Uh, Is that true? (laughs) Is that really the softest material? Did you fact check that? So that, I, I, um, I mean, I love the detail. There is actually, I read years ago, I read an article, I think in Vanity Fair about an Aristotle Onassis yacht. Oh my God. And in Onassis's yacht, yes, in the bar, the stools were covered in whale foreskin. I added the detail here that they were beluga whales yes. just because- Perfect. You know, beluga has the story, it needs but, more specificity. Yes. But yes. So that is rooted in oh, reality. Man. Why go for chagrin when you could have beluga whale foreskin? Well, tell us the, I mean, we're talking here about this, this boat in, in this book, but we haven't really referred to it yet. Your, your second career is not yacht watching, although I suppose you do have a goal to one day get on one of these boats with one of the Russian oligarchs and play a game of Yahtzee. But your second career really is as satire writer. And you started with Victor in the Rubble, a a, a brilliant satire of CIA operations, of bureaucracy in general. So tell us, who is Victor Caro and why do the books center on him? So Victor is a conglomeration of people that I met along the way. Um, Some of his stories are my own experiences and some of his stories came from other people's um, experiences and anecdotes that I picked up along the way. And I kind of rolled them all into one character and said, all right, let's let him loose in, in this new world, um, to sort of highlight the, the, the strange things that I wanted to highlight. Um, the first one, like you said, was to highlight the bureaucracy and the absurdity of the war on terror. And, um, I've said a gazillion times before, but so for me, Victor in the rubble was very much a catharsis, uh, dealing with what my role was in the world, in the war on terror and dealing with what I saw so many people around me going through and sort of how, I mean, I think, you know, we're still seeing now, you know, people were, people were sort of torn apart by this war in more ways than, than, you know, we've even come to terms with even now. And the absurdity of it. And so my way of dealing with all of that um, was to write that book. And what I found after I published it, because publishing it was a total leap of faith. I had no no author platform. I was not known. You know, I was doing this sort of out of nowhere. And I got really good reception. And I got a lot of people coming to me and saying, okay, you captured it. You captured what I went through. Um and thank you for, for writing this and doing it in a way that we can laugh at um, because it's something that's so serious and has really harmed people in so many ways, but 
you found a way to, that we can laugh at this and to, to help us maybe, you know, heal and move on. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, that's pretty fantastic. Good satire um, does that. It, it reveals the truth in sometimes an over the top way, uh, like, like the stools on the yacht, but sometimes it was more like reading reality, right? That the, the amount of forms that need to be filled out in the right order to do something, um, you pointing that out by having the bad guys, the terrorists have a similar bureaucracy and just how ridiculous it seemed to have that. And then you, you shook your head and said, but why isn't it ridiculous for us then? And and it raises some real truths about the way that any, I think, business operation works, but especially something like the intelligence community that sometimes needs rapid action, but yet needs some layer of oversight and accountability. And when those clash, that's a great place for humor. Yeah, exactly. And and I same, I've I've had people just from other sort of large organizations and large corporations come and say, yeah, we we have very similar issues, you know, here too. It's just that what we were dealing with in the agency was, it's not profit, right? In the end, it's not, well, does a company lose money or, or make money? It was much more serious. And, um, and none of us joined the agency to make money. Obviously, <laughs> I am not buying my yacht uh, with a government pension or anything like that. But um, it, it was for the mission. And so to find yourself in this place where the mission doesn't it doesn't always make sense. Like you're, you're convinced of the values of your country and you're convinced of this mission that you're waking up for every day, but sometimes the day to day just doesn't make any sense. And, um, that's it. Satire was, was my way of sort of, uh, getting through that, I guess. Had you always wanted to be a novelist? Yes. I I was always a writer. Actually. My mom actually has a photo of me at like two, holding a pencil. And she's like, here's you editing your first book. Um, I was always a writer. I was a journalist before I joined the agency, um, but I always did also creative writing. Um, and so it was always there. And that was sort of a, a part of me that I I stuck in a box actually for the years that I was working for the agency because um, that creativity just often doesn't fit in that world. And of course you can't, you know, you can't share a lot of what you do. So um, it took me some time after I left to say, okay, how do I process these things that I want to tell, but to be able to tell it in a way that I'm allowed to tell it and without giving away any secrets? I don't know. I mean, part of me now wants to go back in and read the operational reports that you worked on to see whether you were sneaking in your fictional aspirations, right? Maybe you're responsible for intelligence failures yet to come. Could be, could be. <laughs> and we we did sometimes have um, competitions in the office, like you know who could fit a certain word, you know, like oh, yes. there'd be a word of the day that we would all learn that day, and who could fit it into a cable. I like it. Yeah, I think my favorite was, uh, and I won't say whether this was me or a colleague, but someone in an office uh, received a dare to work the word kumquat into a final intelligence product. And you had to find something that was worth writing about that was about the size of a kumquat, because that's usually the way that you could get something snuck in is, is through a comparison, right? Right. So you talk about a device or you talk about something that was roughly the size of a kumquat, because let's face it, Kumquat is one of the funniest words in the English language. 
So that one. Was and so success. did you or your colleague succeed? Um, success was had. I will put it in the passive voice. Okay. Uh, very rarely was success not had because the managers reviewing products were often so, first of all, so focused on the substance and the structure of the piece that, you know, precise words sometimes wouldn't, wouldn't get the scrutiny in the, in that sense. Um, but secondly, there are so many layers of review that even if it got put out, you might be able to sneak it back in at a subsequent layer of review. So I'm not going to say that this was every product. I'm not going to say that this was was every day, but you're right. This was a frequent game that was played to see how could you still keep the message exactly the same, but sneak in that word that somebody just happened to mention today. Like beluga whale. Yeah, sure. One might Force say. Skin. Beluga so, whale foreskin. The first book. I, I, um, oh, sorry, go ahead. The first book, Victor and the Rubble. Um, rubble is a reference to Rubblestan, which is your your country in which this takes place so that you don't find yourself banned from any uh, Middle Eastern or African countries. Um, but that next you took Victor to the jungle in the book, Victor in the jungle. Tell us about the, the basis for his adventure there. So Victor in the jungle, um, Victor has his family with him this time, and he goes on an adventure in South America and he has to take on a populist dictator who is being funded by narco traffickers. Sounds so, very serious. Um, that that also uh, ripped from the headlines. You know, I took. I mean, I, I took some real life scenarios of uh, some countries and situations in South America and and kind of mixed them all together. Um, but definitely got some inspiration from uh, Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one after, so after dealing with sort of the, um, the whiplash and crises that we had all dealt with in the war on terror, I decided Victor in the Jungle was a great time um, to talk about the fun of working in the agency. And so it's much more about the adventure and uh, how much fun you can have if you really have a great team together. Because there are those moments when you have all the right people in the right place and everything just magically falls into place and great things happen and it's super fun and it's uh, super fulfilling. And I said, okay, so I, I kind of trashed the agency a little bit in the first book. So maybe this one will be to show, look, there actually are really great things about it and things that I really loved about it. Um, and I wouldn't give up those, uh, those adventures that I had. The other part of Victor in the jungle um, is that, like I said, he, he has his family Mm-hmm. And so part of what I wanted to highlight was that the that the families actually very much play a role um, when intelligence officers go overseas, N- not just intelligence officers, foreign service officers, any of our sort of gov- U.S. government employees who who go overseas um, because they are they give up careers. Uh, you have kids growing up in strange places, sometimes living in compounds where, you know, you're in an unsafe place and the kid just goes from one compound to another compound. Um, and, but everybody sort of has to play a role in order for it to, to work. And so, um, in Victor in the jungle, in fact, uh, Victor's wife, Vanessa ends up playing a, a very integral role in the entire, uh, mission. And, and then everybody has fun because it's just an adventure and it's super fun. And you carry that family theme forward in your brand new book, Victor in Trouble. 
which is just out. Uh, I won't give away any secrets, but the family plays a, a key role here too. But the subject, I mean, if your first book was a, a satire, but with a bit of surreal nightmare in it involving the bureaucracy, the second one was a satire, but was more of a buddy comedy in some ways. Um, how would you describe this this third book and why you chose to write it? So the third book is um, a satire of Russian influence operations. So it it came out of everything um, that we were discussing before, the, the Russian interference in the elections in the U.S. and Russian influence operations across Europe. So it, it derived from all of this research that I had done on uh, Russian election interference and Russian influence operations. Um, and part of what I wanted to show was, again, that it, it wasn't just happening in the United States. And so I, I wanted to take the politics out of the conversation and I wanted to highlight the national security side of it. But of course, in a fun and engaging way, because it sounds so boring, even when I just phrase it that way. Um, so it takes place in Europe. Um, but one of the real challenges in it was, um, that it was, we were living in such an absurd time, right? The, the, the Trump years and looking at what Russia was doing, everything was absurd and we're still, things are still absurd, right? We're in this post-factual world. We have disinformation campaigns being run by foreign intelligence operatives, but also by government politicians or by super PACs or you know, this playing with the information space. And so what was so challenging in writing this book was that when I did satire, it was hard to tell if it, if it was yeah. too absurd or too real. And because we were living already in such uh, absurdity. That was a hard one for me reading it because there are elements of it, like some of the elements of the, of the yacht itself that uh, obviously, we're we're over the top satire, but a whole lot of the the Russian interference stuff, it it, it read a little bit at, at times like you were just describing reality, and you weren't. What what could you do to make it more absurd? Um, and of course, there are cases where you did that. I won't give away that had me uh, laughing out loud. But for the most part, this was a more challenging book in that way than the others because you had to try to top reality. Yeah, it was really hard. And I, I went through several iterations and all of my poor like beta readers who read so many really, really bad drafts before I hit what I think is, you know, what I hope is a good book. Um, it was it was very difficult um, and I had to keep myself planted in reality. I had to keep coming back and saying to myself, OK, these are the parts that I know are true. And so now how can I play with it? And what, what are the places where I can, I yeah. can make satire? And yeah. so I do a lot of poking fun at the Russians. So the, the, the Russian intelligence officers get made fun of uh, the Russian president that I have made up. He gets made fun of, but I don't think there is anything in the book that does not stem from something real. Mm -hmm. I think almost everything in the book comes from a real scenario, something that really actually happened that we know happened, but then I play and twist it a little bit just to fit in, uh, with, with the story. But th these influence operations are really mm -hmm. strange. I mean, these are people going straight up against, uh, trying to buy our politicians, 
assassinating people in the middle of very large European cities um, and poisoning people and a, a Russian president with a cult of personality around him and an American president with his own uh, cult of personality around him who is taking it out on the intelligence officers below him who are trying to tell him the truth of what's happening. And so all of this is a scenario that we know. And so the question was, yeah, how do I put this into a story that is going to be entertaining, mm -hmm. but is going to highlight these, this issue, which I want to highlight, which is this isn't about the American president. This isn't about um, what's any politics that are happening in the United States. This is about national security. And in order to see that, we need to see that this is happening in other countries too. And let's put the focus back on Russia mm -hmm. and look at what Russia is doing and why this is dangerous to, to all of us. When you started writing uh, you know, spy novels, and, and tell me if you think, if you don't think of them as spy novels, because that's a genre. And obviously there's kind of, you know, there are dominant examples in the genre that loom very large, whether it's like you know, John le Carre or Charles McCary. Did you, I mean, did you have a genre in mind that you were aiming for, or did you try to resist doing something that, you know, mimicked or kind of echoed other spy novels? Or did you just say like, I'm just doing satire and it just, just happens to be about intelligence officers? No, I knew I wanted to do satire, but I also knew that I wanted to uh, write about the world of intelligence um, and get sort of, you know, these sort of messages, I guess, that I have through. Um, but I, I never thought, or even now think of myself sort of as like a, a spy thriller mm -hmm. writer, like, like the Carre or a Tom Clancy or something like that, because it is satire. Right. But the idea behind it is, to, is to highlight a truth. Um, and it, it's part of why I, John the Carre is a, is a separate issue because he does a, he does a decent job, but so many spy writers and spy movies and all of these things. This isn't the real world. Like, the, right. you know, it's fun and it's entertaining and we can get into it for different reasons, but that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to sort of explain what is this really like on the inside? And even though it's satire, I've had plenty of people come to me from, who are from the inside and who know and have said to me, this is actually more real than many other things that I've read or seen. Um, and that's sometimes yeah. disappointing to people on the outside because they want us to all be Jason yeah. Bourne or, or James Bond or something like that. But in, you know, in reality, we, we have families, we sit at desks. Um, we have bureaucracy. We have to fill things out. We have offsites with team building. You know, there's all kinds of just real human beings in these organizations who do these things and they're not infallible and there is bureaucracy and, but you know, it's people getting up every day and sort of doing the best that they can, even when things are going against them. There's a, there's a really good Charles McCary book called the Mirnik dossier, which it's, I mean, it is ostensibly, it is a book kind of about an intelligence operation, but the entire thing is told through documents. So it's the conceit is that, this dossier has been presented to an intelligence oversight committee as a way of helping them understand by reading memos and cables and reports from case officers and transcripts how an intelligence operation unfolds. And it kind of has a melanin of intrigue, but it's very slow. 
It's very methodical and it's just told through all these forms. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, when writers like you try to get inside like the world that it's really like, the thing that people come away with is like, my God, it's a corporation, right? It is just layer after layer after layer after layer after person. Um, but there is intrigue embedded within that, mm-hmm. right? It's just that there's a whole lot of this other stuff that goes on that I think actually makes it far more relatable for the average person even if it's often less exciting because what they want is to see, you know, Jason Bourne, you know, rappelling off the skyscraper and, you know, barging through a window. That's true. And I did not know that example that you just gave, but the very first, when I first started writing Victor in the Rubble, um, it it mostly consisted of cables, actually. Mm, I was trying mm -hmm. to tell the story back and forth with cables between uh, different stations and headquarters. And then somebody was like, nobody... (laughs) Nobody wants to read cables all day. Like, let's, let's give them a little bit more. And I realized, yeah, okay, this isn't this isn't the right way to approach this. But yeah, yeah, I w- yeah, it's not the it was not the best. Ex- I like McCurry. This is not his best executed book, but it's mm. it's, it's it's interesting. I want to ask uh, another question on this before we move on. Um, well, first of all, I just want to note for for people interested in this, if you want to know all those stories about members of the U.S. Congress traveling to Moscow and not knowing what they were doing while there, you will want to read Victor in Trouble because there are some um, very enlightening scenes, I should say, about exactly what was happening. Um, but without giving anything away, there there is the end of, of an arc for Victor uh, in this book in, in one way. And I'm wondering whether you think you're done writing about him, whether his his story is done in your mind or if you have other ideas in mind that would also involve this character that people have grown to love. Uh, look, even even James Bond came back from retirement at one point, yeah. but, um, you know, three, three is good. Uh, and I love Victor. He's a great character. I agree. Um, but I've actually started writing my fourth novel, which is not a Victor novel. Mm. Um, it has different characters in it, but you know, as, as they say, never say never. So, um, you know, look, if there's a, if there's some reason for Victor Cara to come back, I would have absolutely no problem. Well, I, for one, would love to see the, the Victor movie trilogy come out because some of the, the, the scenes in these books jump off the page and you, I'm finding myself visualizing them and thinking that the physical comedy that that could be told with this visually would would be would be wonderful. And I would love to see some enterprising Hollywood production company pick these up and run with it, which, of course, raises. The I question. would love to see that, too. Yeah, yeah, I think you would. I understand you could make at least five dollars this way. Something like that. That's nice. Just a picture on the back of a yacht. That's all I'm asking. That, that's for. right. Who would play Victor Caro? Who who is your Hollywood actor or enterprising Washington Post reporter who would play this this stunning character? You know, I haven't been asked that now in a while because the first time I played that was with the first book, and so I think everybody I had in mind has probably aged out. Oh, I don't know. I don't know anymore who I would have play him. Who was your first idea? Now that you say that, I don't remember. We used to throw names around at the dinner table. Mm. Um, but it has to be somebody who can who can pull off being European. Victor actually mm. was, was born and raised in Italy. So he has an accent in English. 
Um, but, um, and now I, I think of people, but I can't, I don't know their names now that you, now that we say that, but, uh, like the, I don't remember. Hmm. He played the guy who played, um, that guy who was um, in that one. What thing? about Alessandro Navola? What? Who's that? Alessandro Navola. He was, um, in the many saints of Newark. I didn't see that one. Hmm. Um, uh, yeah, no, he is, uh, well, he's American. Um, he is about 48 now, no, I want to say. It's about the right. Um, yeah. But uh, I bet, you know, he could probably do uh, Italian. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, he's married to Emily Mortimer. Oh, okay. That helps. Yeah, and his father was Pietro Navola, who worked at Brookings. How about that? Mm-hmm. It's a small world after all. It I'm is. thinking at the time of your first book, uh, everybody gravitated towards Leonardo DiCaprio. That was the easy choice. But I don't think that works for Victor as he's as he's evolved. So I think we're going to have to go go with somebody else. We'll keep working on it. And in the meantime, okay. we'll talk about some some spy movies that do exist already because we wanted to take the opportunity of having you here to to talk through some spy satire that we've seen on the big screen. So we'll put it to you to start. When when you think of spy satire that's been done by Hollywood, what stands out to you is something that you find both incredibly entertaining, but also makes you makes you think something interesting about the espionage field. Well, I think that for me, the two that jump first for me are uh, the interview and Team America, both of which are totally ridiculous, <laughs> but also very yeah. funny. Uh, the interview is interesting because it it became it became the target of its own intelligence operation, so it's it's fun on several levels, I think. And then Team America, just because for me it was it was this realization that you could do satire and you could make fun of America, um, and and you could make fun of war, uh, and it could be very funny. And so for me, Team America was sort of one of these moments like, ah, okay, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. I um, I didn't love the interview as a movie. Um, I was covering very deeply the Sony hack by North Korea in response to the interview, which, of course, is a movie about interviewing. Is it Kim Jong? They tried to interview Kim Jong-un, right? Yeah. Yeah. And Kim Jong-il is the villain in, in Team, Team America. America. Um, but I, I'm with you on Team America as like I have this this idea that the f- that the first two great post 9/11 films are Team America mm-hmm. and um, The Dark Knight, the second Christopher Nolan Batman film, in which the Joker is just obviously a symbol of chaos and terrorism and whatever, and surveillance of a population is a huge theme in The Dark Knight mm-hmm. um, and that kind of thing. But you know, I think you're right. I mean, the satire of it, it was. You know, it, it's it's relentlessly ribbing America and the idea of you know it's the theme song is America, fuck yeah, yeah. of course, and these and these guys are just causing more damage than the terrorists sometimes. This is but it. They're so earnest and good natured about it. <laughs> exactly the opening scene where they go and they basically just destroy, destroy Paris, Paris. <laughs> and it, it doesn't even occur to them that the French don't love them, and the, the right. pictures on all of the Parisians' face, like, oh my god, what just happened here? I'll say it was that fantastic. The Dark Knight did not make me laugh, but oh no, but Team funny. America is the last movie I can remember, and maybe the only movie where I have literally fallen out of my seat in the theater. I was laughing so hard. I went with a colleague of mine from the agency and we went to see it. And I, 
I don't remember that there was any drinking involved. I don't think so. I think it was simply, it was so over the top that by the time it got to the vomit scene, the vomit we, scene. we could not remain in our seats. We were thrashing in laughter so much that I, I literally ended up on the floor. And that's not a good thing in most movie theaters, but I still have a positive memory of it because it was so joyful in its absurdity. There's, um, there, I think that there is, is an, a director's cut version. Well, there are two versions of Team America. One is that has everything that's in the film, but the other one is the one that also includes the sex scene. Do yes. you guys know about I mean, yes. And like, this is not quite a family podcast, but it's not that kind of podcast. So we don't have to go all the way there. But it, it is just like one of the things I love about Trey Parker and Matt Stone's humor is it just doesn't stop. So the sex scene goes from silly to ridiculous to graphic to revolting <laughs> and you're just like where else are they gonna go and there's just something about every time they reach the every time you they think you're at the end they're like no we're gonna push it further we're gonna go one more <laughs> yeah, they're, gonna, they're gonna keep going there's another story i heard about that movie and i don't know if this is true but whatever we'll pretend it's true that when they could you know it's, it's isn't it like mo the puppets are mo they what we're trying to do basically a send up was it thunderbirds is the old 70s show that had puppets mm. that were like military spy intrigue there's an old puppet show from the 70s that wasn't satire and that was one of their inspirations and the story i heard is when they got the puppets back they were so realistic that they were creepy Ooh. And so they had the puppet makers remake them to be like a little less human. Like it was in that uncanny valley yeah. point where it's like, oh, this is too, too weird. Um, but the puppets are half the fun of it. There's just it's hilarious, these ridiculous puppets that you couldn't, you know, have weird expressions and strange movements. You couldn't do it live action because that was, oh, of, no, that was part of the, well, first of all, you couldn't, I think, for uh, ethical and legal reasons. But I, I think. That was part of what made it work is the yes. you got over that absurdity cliff and then you could get to the to the reality. But there was really, in my memory, nothing else quite like it. I mean, my my early exposure to spy satire were probably like everybody else's, which is, you know, James Bond. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of the movies more explicitly than others are are satire. But, you know, I grew up in the James Bond movies that were coming out were Roger Moore movies. And he was clearly winking at the camera while he was while he was doing this and the and the writing of the, and many of them helped him here um, but it wasn't i guess that was still seen as a legitimate franchise and people still treated it as oh this is a real action movie so it wasn't until spies like us came out that i really identify oh this is what a true send up of intelligence really looks like and that movie i just think is a is a fascinating slice of you know the cold war of intelligence of the saturday night live feeling to it it was just wonderful and isn't if i correct me if i'm wrong but in that movie which of course is dan Aykroyd and chevy chase is chevy chase working in the cia already or is he at the state department but he's working in an office and he's a total fuck up yeah. and just like it's a bureaucracy and he's taking a test to get into like either the CIA or into some elite status. 
Uh, and of course, he cheats wildly on the test, and that's how they isolate him as this. I'm pretty guy sure he's, he's State Department, and he's you know this diplomatic family. Uh, that's my memory. That's of it, it right? 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 But um, they both cheat, right? And to me, that was such a well. Such Dan Aykroyd helps thing. him. Yeah, he falls in. Dan Aykroyd's a goody goody, but he gets pulled in by Chevy Chase as the bad influence. Yeah, but in a way, it's a very funny scene because they're using like their own sort of spy gadgets yes. to be able to cheat. Yep. Yeah, he has like the fake arm and he has the yeah. answers rolled up and he's like, <laughs> he's pulling it out. Yeah, and and the he pulls proc- it out of his mouth at one point. He pulls out <laughs> like a tape that has the answers. <laughs> and he keeps like, making, he's keeping going to Dan Aykroyd going like, <laughs> like trying to get him to give him the answer. And interesting, and then the proctor in the test who like pushes a button and the cameras come on, the proctor in that test, Frank Oz. The voice of, yeah, one of the Muppets voices, the voice of Fozzie the Bear and Miss Piggy and others. It's Frank Oz. And one of the things I love about the movie is with all of the -the over-the-top scenes, there's still some elements of what later I learned were were actually useful uh, spy tricks. Like when they they get to Afghanistan and they have their contacts pick them up and, you know, they're wearing the polo shirts and the, the sweaters tied over their necks. And... Suddenly, Dan Aykroyd's character, you know, sees the watch on one of the the contacts and immediately gets Chevy Chase out of the car, says, these guys are not our legitimate contacts. That was a Russian wristwatch. And he has this obsession with wristwatches. He's memorized every watch ever made. But it was the power of observation that got me is he just he knew enough to look. And that set them, of course, on a different path in Afghanistan. So even in all the absurdity there. There were some true elements of observation there. And and the um the nuclear panic. I mean the the plot of the movie, you know, centers around nuclear weapons and, you know, Star Wars is kind of a theme in this. But I mean, this is where the movie ultimately builds to without giving too much away, is this moment where they think World War Three is about to start. Um, and I mean, I remember it must have come out in what, 85, 86, probably. So, of course, it's at this, you know, fever pitch period of heightened anxiety and real existential fear in the mm-hmm. Cold War. I mean, the day after had only come out in 83. I mean, right. people were openly contemplating global annihilation Mm -hmm. through an exchange between the Americans and the Soviets. So it has this underlying theme in the movie that is actually, you know, deadly serious. But of course, it's just, it's all satire. It was 1985. So it's right, right at that time, picking up on that, you know, that feeling right from 82 to 85, that heightened, you know, war scare ideas. We didn't know about Abel Archer and all those things at the yeah. time. But war we, games had come out. Yeah, yeah. You had a, a sling of those. Red Dawn was it was in that rough oh, time yeah. frame as well. So you had a lot of that going on. But I think Spies Like Us, I mean, obviously it's in the title, so you couldn't miss the fact that it was supposed to be more about intelligence than some of these. But this is this is before the movies like, you know, Austin Powers series and others had come out. So you didn't really have a lot of spy comedy or if you did they were just laughably bad and just about assassinations gone wrong yeah yeah and they also did you know cover right you you learn the limits of cover in spies like us Mm -hmm. if you if you got to immediately change and what your story is and you can't back it up everybody's just calling each other doctor 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 
That that actually has one of my favorite lines from a film, which I still quote, which is, you know, that they're they're dropped into it's when they're dropped in Afghanistan, right? And they think and they're posing as like a Doctors Without Borders kind of team, basically. And they have to do um an appendectomy on this tribal chief. And so they're pushed into this like operating theater in a tent and they clearly have no idea what the fuck they're doing. And but they have to maintain the cover. And at one point they're like they're in the surgical masks and like Dan Aykroyd has the scalpel and he's about ready to cut into the guy's chest. <laughs> and, the, and the actual doctor goes, Isn't that a bit high for an appendectomy? And he's like, do you want to do the surgery? Would you like to do it? Fine. Why don't you come in here and you do the surgery? And he looks at him and goes, I was measuring for skeletal girth. We mock what we don't understand. <laughs> Have you used that line since in other we situations? We mock what we don't understand. Yeah. yeah. That's a good line with your editor. So good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It gets me out of a lot of scrapes. What about, um, there was a movie that came out quite a few years later um, and it, I remember thinking this may be the best movie I'm ever going to see because it had all of the perfect ingredients for the tastiest stew one would ever eat. It had the Coen brothers. It had George Clooney. It had Brad Pitt. It had Francis McDermott. It had John Malkovich. It had JK Simmons and Richard Jenkins. It had just the perfect cast with the, the perfect team behind it. And I left it disappointed. This is the movie uh, Burn After Reading. What did what did you think of that one? I also was disappointed. Same. It had such a buildup because you had so many good people involved. Um, and as a as a movie, it doesn't work. There are individual parts of it that I think are fantastic. So, like Brad Pitt. <laughs> Like we found your secret shit. Yeah. And he's yeah. doing his little dance thing and they're thinking, how can we make money from finding your secret shit? And then like Malkovich, who's sort of this hoity toity analyst, like I'm writing my memoirs. <laughs> he uses very erudite words and all of this. So there's some things in it that are absolutely fantastic. And then the closing scene of it where JK Simmons is like, well, what did we learn here? <laughs> And we realize nobody has learned anything in any of this, and it all just sort of gets packed away. There's a few key moments in it that are fantastic, but I agree with David. Like Overall, as a whole, uh, not a great film. Didn't live up to its potential. Shane, what did you think? <clears throat> I don't think it was a great film either, uh, as evidence for the fact that I can remember very little about yeah. it. Other than I think that maybe I had a feeling that it was trying really hard to be a satire and to be parody and to kind of send up lots of tropes. Mm -hmm. um, and it just kind of kind of eh. like, I mean, you're making me think it's a different kind of movie, but the movie that is, that works much more that also had a big, big cast and was this big kind of, you know, production wasn't really a spy movie, but was wag the dog. Right. Uh, right. You know, that, that to me, that was like, this is much more of like a, of a satire that works and is more memorable, obviously different plot and everything. But um, yeah, I just, I, don't burn after reading. I'm just kind of like me. Yeah. It felt to me like it was one of those cases where the whole was much, much less than the sum of its parts. And I can't figure out how that happened because of all the, the talent in it. Maybe it's the story, maybe because literally nothing was at stake. So it didn't mm -hmm. really feel, it didn't capture me that much. Uh, but there was one bit of trivia with it that I remember, and I can't remember if it was IMDB or Wikipedia, but it was some prominent, web source 
that when the movie came out, it stated without sourcing, it just stated it as fact that this movie was based on the 2005 book by former CIA director Stansfield Turner called Burn Before Reading, which was not Turner's memoir. He had written that years before, but he wrote this this other book, Burn Before Reading, which was essentially a, a, a brief history of presidents and intelligence. You know, what challenges did each president face involving the use of, of secret intelligence? And it was fine. Um, it wasn't particularly memorable, memorable by itself, but some jackass saw that a movie was coming out called Burn After Reading and, and somehow saw a CIA director had written a book with two out of the same three words and, and stated as a fact that this was based on that when in fact there's nothing in common between these books. I don't know if that's still out there on the interwebs, but it was at the time and it drove me nuts. That's funny because when the movie first came out, I remember thinking it was called Burn Before Reading. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was part of the That's satire. That's a better title. Yeah. I thought that was part of the satire because, of course, if you burn it before reading, uh-huh. then you don't. You're yeah. onto something there. Yeah. yeah. It's it's much better. In fact, you, if you would have told me that Stansfield Turner wrote a satire book called Burn Before <laughs> Reading, and that would sound plausible. Right. <laughs> the one takeaway I have from it is, is J.K. Simmons. And this points to a theme on a lot of the spy satire movies is – Almost always to me, it is the, I'll say character actor, but it's the actor who plays the, the, the CIA supervisor, right? It's the person who is representing the, the bureaucratic banality of it all, who, who steals it. And it's not the over-the-top performances, but it's the person who, who takes the briefing or gives the briefing in such a deadpan way that steals it. And I remember thinking that that was probably the best role in the whole movie, uh, just as we we see in some others where the bureaucracy is the funniest part. Yeah, he's also just, he is fantastic. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as an actor and one of those rare uh, also um, character actors who can be a leading man mm-hmm. uh, uh, and carry a movie and for which he won an Oscar for Whiplash, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but But I feel like spy movies in general just so well lend themselves to comedic actors and to character actors. And like, I'm thinking also like Philip Seymour Hoffman, who can do both as well, but remember him in Charlie Wilson's Mm -hmm. war where he plays Gus. I'm going to get his last name wrong, Greek last name, but you know, he throws a chair through a window at one point and it's just, it, they're just great because they're these just, um, you know, they're, they're just like these kind of like amalgams of different personality traits. And like you can see that guy in the office or that guy out in the field and he can be the voice of reason or he can be the wild card. Uh, and I think that really good spy fiction always kind of has a character like that that's just a bit off and, it, and is more of a character than, you know, the kind of unflappable Bond who is just always in control because it's just, I mean, so much of intel- these kinds of operations, I mean, yeah. you try to keep them in control, but anything could go wrong. I think the character actor can help channel that too. A different angle on that, and Alex, I'd be curious to get your view of this series, was the Austin Powers series because in the Austin Powers series, you had everything Shane just talked about in the main character. Um, as the series developed, Dr. Evil, I think, became much more of an interesting character and and got more of the, the humor right. But especially in the first movie, it was Austin Powers was the center. He was the over-the-top character. He was playing everything. Um, what did you think of those movies? They're super fun. Yeah. Uh, first of all, the dance sequences 
are always fantastic in the Austin Powers movies. The opening one in the very first Austin Powers, it's a fantastic little dance sequence. Um, I, I think they're fun. I mean, by the third one, it's a little bit too much, I guess, but they do keep finding new things to make fun of. But yeah, Dr. Evil is it is is a fun character too, and he gets even more over the top, and they bring in all of his... But it's also making fun of Hollywood spies, oh, yeah. right? So it's it's satire on several levels because it he makes fun of different cultures. He makes fun of different time periods in history. And then he also makes fun of just the industry itself and how they make James Bond type films and, and the Avenger films and those types of things. And it gets away with something too, which is, you know, by, because he's the plot is that he's been reanimated after having been like in, been cryogenically freezed for like 30 years or whatever. So he's in the matter modern day and he still thinks it's the sixties. So of course he's just horribly misogynistic and mm -hmm. he's, you know, it's a, you know, I think it's probably where most people, Americans learned the phrase shagging. Uh, uh, and so he can send up all of the ways in which these early spy films are just like, you know, pretty terrible to women <laughs> in the way they treat women. Um, uh, and at the same time, we can laugh at it, too. So it like works on lots of levels where you can be like, those jokes are kind of funny, even though that's not nice. Um, so it, it works. um pretty nicely i'm trying to remember who is the woman who plays opposite him in the oh i'm gonna look it up real quick elizabeth hurley elizabeth yes hurley. yeah she's great in it she's great and and like has this moment where you know where of course he's like he's talking about some other woman who he shagged he's like oh yeah baby i shagged her rotten and she's hurt i mean she's like hurt that he's such a dog and like in any of the early James Bond movies, like all the women just kind of like just accept that that's the way he is. Mm -hmm. And I liked it in this one. There, he, she was like, "You're an asshole." Yeah. <laughs> one of the movies that I only recently saw. I didn't see it when it came out, but my my wife and I watched it and thought it was almost the perfect movie. And we weren't prepared for that because there have been many movies. And and here's the here's the general conceit for this type of spy satire where. You take somebody who is not a, a spy and you pair them with someone who is or or you put them in kind of like spies like us, uh, similar to that. And I'm thinking movies like the horribly named Central Intelligence with The Rock and uh, Kevin Hart. And and, you know, they go on adventures and funny things happen, but generally they don't work for me. And then we saw Spy with Melissa McCarthy and we absolutely adored it not only because it is the only movie of all these we've discussed that has used the word chatter within the first eight or ten minutes of the movie twice it used the word chatter so that was a good thing but overall just as a as a well-constructed movie that builds and does have character development even at a, a ridiculous level i think it worked so alex have you seen spy i have seen spy and it's it is a very funny movie so it's funny as a whole just as you said, the story itself is very funny. It's funny that it has incredible one-liners. So it has these one-liners that you'll you know be pulling out for the next few years in random conversation. Yep. And then the characters are funny, and each character is developed in in, a, in such a funny way. So I'll get to Melissa McCarthy in a minute, but like the Jason Statham character, who 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 is sort of like the badass you know, case officer guy out in the field and he does all of the cool, badass James Bond type shit. <laughs> but it's like ridiculous amounts of things. And when he, 
he says it in his very Jason Statham point of, you know, way of doing it. And it's just hilarious. <laughs> and they're very funny things that outrageous things that he has experienced, but it's absolutely hilarious. And she's great. She is, like he says, so she's this back office person, but who clearly is very competent in her work. Jude Law is the suave face of an operation. Uh, and in the end, Melissa McCarthy ends up going out and she, you know, she becomes in the field, the spy, and she's really good at it. No, it's very funny. There's, and the, and the bad guy, uh, the Rose, what's, what's Rose her Burn. name? Yeah. Rose, Rose Burn. Burn. Yeah. She's, she's a very good villain dressed like a slutty mermaid trainer. Uh, no, slutty uh, dolphin trainer. That's the the line they use in the movie, right? That's not that's yeah. not an Alex original, although it sounds like. No, that. no, no. That's what they call her in the movie. And 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 the um to the director of this too, um Paul Fig, who did I want to say, did he do? Did Paul Fig do Bridesmaids? He did do Bridesmaids, right? Yeah. yeah. Like Spy yeah. kind of comes out in this period too, where there's this. I mean, Bridesmaids kind of being like this the the starting point for it of this just incredible run of women-driven comedies starring like Kristen Wiig and Rose Byrne and Melissa McCarthy and a lot of like SNL talent and everything. And I liked that what Spy did was it flipped around the genre by yeah. making women the protagonists. Absolutely. And it was kind of effortless. Like you, do, you don't watch this movie and think like, oh, how novel. They're, they're making a commentary by having women in the main roles because Melissa McCarthy's character is just so believable. Like, mm-hmm as this fish out of water. And so it's kind of like this wonderful thing that it does. It's like a little bit subversive where it's, it's playing with the gender role, but it's not doing it in a way where that is the point of the movie. Yeah, the and only, I thought that was just really smart. The, the only prominent men are the, you know, the cartoon characters, the cardboard cutouts, right? The Jude Law character and the Jason Statham Well, they're all character. kind of cartoonish. Yeah, but yeah I, I don't think that, they're, they don't really have any agency, if you will, because you have Melissa McCarthy, but then you have her 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 best friend who ends up becoming her support officer. Yes, that's right. Um, that's right. You have oh God, obviously Rose Byrne as the as the uh, antagonist. But then I found one of the best characters in there, similar to the J.K. Simmons role, was uh, Allison Janney, who from the Allison West Wing. Allison Janney, and she plays oh. that again, that bureaucrat, that manager who who plays it straight and and runs the meetings. <laughs> and I, I did see the track of some of the outtakes from the movie and so many of the best lines, whether it was that string Alex, you referred to of, of J- Jason Statham with just ridiculous scenario after another that he says he's been through for his bona fides as a, as a good operations officer. But even the lines that Allison um, Janney has in one of the scenes, those are being fed to her at the moment ad lib by the director and that shows that a lot more of this movie than we thought wasn't scripted or if it was, they simply threw out the lines and then told the actor in that moment while they were rolling, here's what you're going to say. And so many of them were so over the top that even these actors lose their shit when they hear the line and can't get it out of their mouth the first two or three times. Cause it's literally some of the funniest prose I've heard in one of these movies. Yeah. And Melissa McCarthy being like a great improv actor um, and never on SNL. I mean, she wasn't in mm. SNL, but she had a, I mean, I can't remember if she was one of the groundlings or not. Um, I should ask the Google if she was in the groundlings. She may have been. Mm. Um, yeah, in fact she was, she is an alum of the groundlings, which of course is, is an improv and sketch troupe, but 
you know, there are the way that that movie is put together, you're right. And you can see it in the outtakes. It's kind of brilliant. And it's just such a testament to how good all the actors were. And to your point, Alex, about like lines that stick with you. Like there are, there are, there's like one is like where they're in the, where they're in um, Rose Byrne's private jet. And she's talking about how Melissa McCarthy reminds her of her mother and a sad Bulgarian clown. <laughs> she's like, I like you. It's the Bulgarian it's clown. Bulgarian in you. clown in you. That's one. And then another one is when she's ordering wine in the restaurant. And it kind of like in Spies Like Us where she's the fish out of water and she has to pretend that she knows what she's ordering. And she's like, I'd like something uh, crisp with uh, the, the grit of a hummus. <laughs> and she's like, what's this wine here on the front? And he's like, that's the name of the restaurant, ma'am. Like, well, why don't you bring me something that I don't know about, like a, like a delicious wine? <laughs> We should use that next time we go out you know, to dinner. Go, to go to the thing of, you know, how they were feeding them the lines and, and improv and stuff. But sometimes that's where the best comedy comes from. Yeah. Is when you just start running through things and and you stop censoring yourself, right? Yes. It's, and when you just say, okay, I'm just going to let it all go and none of this matters and we'll, we'll edit whatever out and we'll use what actually works. But when you censor yourself, you do kind of you know, mute down sometimes what, yes. uh, what might come out. Whereas when you just said, okay, just run with it and go and something will come out that we'll be able to use. You often get really golden nuggets. It's also point. a good, it's a, it's a good indication of the director being in yeah. the moment because there probably was a good script, right? That there probably were good lines there, but after seeing the chemistry between the actors coming up with this, just batshit crazy line and just feeding it and saying run with it because it yeah. and honestly it was some of the best lines in the movie that mm-hmm. i found myself just re- really being impressed that they could pull that off finding out that those were often the ones that were fed in that way um so yeah i became even more of a fan of his after that and bridesmaids kind of like yeah. they i mean famously was like they were all off the chain yep and just sort of saying outrageous things, the physical comedy, the grotesque humor. Um, and again, though, like movies that like men could do, like, I mean, the hangover films are sort of like that, but it was just like, ooh, it's yeah. ladies doing this now. Uh, and it like, and the novelty of that, like in Bridesmaid, wears off in like two minutes. And then you're just like, no, this is just brilliant comedy. And I, I think that that is like, that's a lot of credit to Paul Fig and the actors who are in yeah. that. And, yeah, I love Spy. It is well is to, to go back to the interview, which was the first movie, one of the first movies we discussed. Mm-hmm. There's a line in there from James Franco where he says, "You can't say that. It's the 21st century. Women are smart now." <laughs> I love it. James Franco may not be too smart, but brilliant, <laughs> brilliant. Well, Alex, I, I want to say thank you for being generous with your time, talking with us about everything from yachts to books to real CIA to uh, satire. CIA movies. We appreciate it. We have one other My thing we pleasure. need to do, though, because on Chatter, we end our interviews by pulling out a question from the Chatter box, which has a random question for you to answer. We, we don't know what it will be, but we will require that you answer it because that's just what we do. All it's right. like a polygraph. Let's see what it has for you. Please, please don't hook me up to any wires while you ask me. No, no, no. It's not that kind. Of, although that gives us a good idea, Shane. Let's talk to sure. the Goat Rodeo Studio about their electrical system and what it can handle. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a really good time booking guests with that. Oh, good point. Good point. Okay. Chatterbox question. 
Join Chatter for a live polygraph. How could that go wrong? Followed by electrocution. Oh, wow. This is topical. Who played the best James Bond? There you go. And that's a randomly drawn question. No, I'll go. I go with the. I'll go with Roger Moore. That's the. That's because that's what who I grew up with. Oh, um, that's it. Those are the movies that I know the best. Are the Roger Moore movies? You know, it's funny. I I also feel the same that I know them best. But that's I think why he's not my favorite is because I, I saw those and they were entertaining. Especially I, A View to a Kill was one that just stuck with me. Maybe it was Christopher Walken more than Roger Moore. Um, but when I watched the original Sean Connery's, the Goldfinger, the the Doctor No, I thought, now that's what that's what it's supposed to be, and it and it always felt that way for me. And everybody else, no matter how good an actor they are, I'm always somewhere in the recesses of my mind, always comparing them to Sean Connery in those first three or four movies. It's not fair. So, do you now feel Sean Connery is your favorite? I think I think I have to say yes. Yeah. Um, very curious about the next casting because yeah. there are some opportunities to do something really interesting. Like I think uh, Richard Madden would be a fantastic James Bond, the oh, game, yeah. Rob uh, Stark from game of Thrones. Um, and he was in the eternals. And I, I just think he, he has the air to do it without bringing baggage with him. Like some of the other actors, like a Henry Cavill who would come in, but has so much, I mean, the guy's played, you know, Superman already. Come on. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see the direction they they choose to go and whether they choose to change James Bond by doing it, because James Bond has a particular he has a particular character in history that involves him not evolving with the times. That's supposed to be part of the point. And if they change the character enough to get a very different actor in there, I think you kind of lose some of what makes Bond Bond. Where do you guys stand on the whole question of whether they should make Bond a woman, which has come up? And they flirt with the idea a little bit in the new Bond movie, which I think the new Bond movie is a mess. But they introduce a new 00, and it's a woman. Right. But it's clear that's not 007, but like... Well, she is, though, right? She is 007 for a Oh, little. that's right, because she inherits the number. Yeah. I'm perfectly fine with a female 00 agent, and I think you could have a great series that does that, but that's not James Bond. That's not James Bond. They should branch yeah. off and give her her yeah. own. Yeah. This, is my, this is one issue, actually, that I've had. That, that you know, Hollywood went through this period of like, well, now we'll make women in charge. But instead of giving them their own movies, they just remade Old movies with women. So they did Ocean's 8. Uh, they yeah. did the new Ghostbusters yep. with a women, yeah. you know, female cast. But do Bridesmaids. Do uh, do Spy. Like, just totally agree. write new things for them. You, you know, it doesn't have to be rehashing old stuff. Right. You lose um, both what made James Bond, I mean, even more so in the novels and in the movies, not not a pleasant character, right? He, he was not a role model in so many ways. You you lose that when when you're trying to to change it in that way, but you also honestly restrict the actor. Um, you you cast a woman to play James Bond, and you're right you you don't give them the opportunity to create their whole new arc. There's so much baggage that comes with it. So I yeah I would love to see a new Double O series that would be about different different agents, maybe different time frames. Maybe you you do give Idris Elba a Double O role, but it's not Double O Seven. Um, and you still have the somewhat 
colonial heritage, somewhat racist heritage of James Bond. And you could actually play with that in today's era and do a lot more with the the burden of that that cultural history in the United Kingdom. And I, I just would hate to see them lose that um, by doing it in a, in a very different way. As long as the broccoli family is making that kind of money, I think Devil is Seven is going to be around. I think he's safe. I like Richard Madden, too, and he played a secret agent-ish in Bodyguard. Mm -hmm. Very good series. It would be nice. Alex, thanks again, and I hope everybody finds Victor in Trouble, your latest satire novel, and enjoys laughing out loud when they read it. Thank you. Thanks Thanks, for having me on. Bye. This is fun. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.